The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. It says the church of idolatrous compromise on it. And we have lots more uh, devotionals and advent calendars. If you didn't get one and would like one, we have plenty. So you're welcome to have one. They're down here. We are at the end of Revelation chapter 2. And in our series on Revelation, going through the seven churches. And uh, this is the middle church, Thyatira, in Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. I have finished outlining the book of Revelation, and it will take us through next summer. So we spent four months in the first three chapters, and then we'll spend eight months on the next 19. So it goes a little bit quicker. There are bigger, bigger sections of Scripture to get through. And I'm sure it's because they're just much easier to understand. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word, for making us your people. As we look at the church in Thyatira, would you please help us? We know we're too much like this church as well. We lack faith. We want to compromise. We want to sin. And then we want to rationalize that sin. And we struggle with the same temptations and the same idols. And we're sinful and self-centered. So Lord, help us to focus on Jesus this morning. Help us to meet Jesus in his glory as we see him here in these words. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' good name. Amen. As uh, some of you know, some of you may not, uh, I think the best film ever made was The Godfather. (laughs) 
And if you've ever watched any of the Godfather trilogy, or any other gangster movie for that matter, then you know that at some point in the movie, one of the mobsters, usually the Godfather, will be forced to order the killing of someone who had previously been a close associate or maybe even a family member. And before condemning this person to sleep with the fishes, the mob boss will say this line, it's not personal, it's business. In other words, this person who's about to take the life of another is essentially saying, if we lived in a world where only close relationships mattered, I would never do this. But we don't live in that kind of a world. We live in a world primarily determined by business. And I think part of the reason for the success of the Godfather trilogy with its numerous Oscars or for the success of the Sopranos television series with its numerous Emmys is that we're simply fascinated by this obvious dichotomy created for those who live in that mobster's world. Now, a dichotomy means that you hold two opposite things together. Intention. And you're holding to two things that essentially conflict with each other. And the dichotomy for the mob is they hold to these intimate family commitments and cultural ties, but they operate within a criminal value system shaped by violence. And so we're both shocked and fascinated by people who are able to divide their commitments in such a profound way that they can say with all seriousness, it's not personal, it's business. Now the church in Thyatira found itself divided between its spiritual convictions and the economic pressure of the surrounding culture. Perhaps we can summarize their dilemma with a play on the Godfather's words. See, the spirit of the church in Thyatira was one that tended to say, it's not spiritual, it's business. And that brings us to our text this morning. That's the problem in Thyatira is they could compartmentalize their lives to the point they could say, it's not spiritual, it's business. Let's turn to our text, to verse 18, which was written to the church, and that should be the first blank there. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. As we continue with our series on the book of Revelation, we come to the fourth in a series of seven letters addressed by Jesus Christ to the churches of Asia Minor. And now we've come to Christ's letter to the church in Thyatira. Remember, these seven letters are found in a larger vision, which began back in Revelation 1.12, with a description of the resurrected Lord who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which are symbolic of Christ's presence with his church. And it is Jesus Christ, the Lord and giver of life, who stands in the midst of his churches, commending them for being faithful, encouraging them in the midst of persecution, (coughs) and rebuking them when they need it for failing to do what they ought. And now we've come to Thyatira. And if you could put up the map, please. Okay, we started with Ephesus, 
John is on this little island here of Patmos, and we went from Ephesus. Ephesus was the big powerful city, the big economic engine of the area, sort of like uh, New York uh, would be in our world today. And then we went to Smyrna, and there was great persecution in Smyrna. They had all sorts of cults and weird stuff uh, going on there. It would probably be uh, similar to San Francisco. Um, Then we went up to Pergamum, and Pergamum was like Washington, D.C. It was the regional capital. It was the the, uh, political uh, powerhouse. And now we're moving west in this sort of uh, upside-down U. We're to Thyatira. Thyatira's got nothing. I mean, it's... If we have New York, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., this is like Leesburg or Winchester <laughs> in comparison. It's just not a significant place. The only time we read about Thyatira in, in history is when it's being conquered. And it was conquered by everybody who walked through. <laughs> the, uh, it's, this letter is right in the middle of the churches. And this is the most insignificant place, the most insignificant church. And Jesus has the most to say to the least important church, to the least important place. And Thyatira may have been the least important city of the seven, but in Jesus' eyes, this church is very important. And what we deem as important and what Jesus deems as important are very often two different things. Thyatira is a military outpost. It was founded by uh, Seleucus I, one of Alexander the Great's generals, and uh, to guard one of the approaches to his empire. And... Uh, the city had no natural fortifications. It's out in an open valley. And it depends entirely upon its soldiers, its garrison, to protect itself. And in 190 B.C., it fell to the Romans. And first they made it part of the kingdom of Pergamum. So if anybody was attacking Pergamum, uh, hopefully they would be delayed as they marched through Thyatira. Um, and then it was sort of the province of Asia. And... Uh, it's always had this city has always had a feeling of vulnerability. And uh, I sort of compare it to Winchester because during the Civil War, Winchester changed hands something like 40 times um, because that city can't be adequately defended. You know, it's in the middle of a valley. It has no natural uh, defense for it. And so Winchester just basically every time somebody marched through, they got the city. The... Uh, And that's what this place was like. And I mention this because the promises that Jesus holds out for the believers here in this city all have to do with authority and rule and sovereignty, which is the opposite of their experience. They've never had authority over anything. They haven't been sovereign. They've never been one of the big places. And yet Jesus says, for those who uh, conquer, for those who overcome... All his promises have to do with authority and rule. It's also important because one of the major industries in Thyatira is the manufacturing of weapons. They figured if somebody's going to march through, we might as well sell to them as they go by. Um, So it had a large metalworking trade. It's a prosperous manufacturing and trading town. 
It's otherwise a lesser place than all the other towns that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. It's not a center of imperial worship. It is not the seat of government. One scholar commented, the longest and most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the cities. Thyatira is a trading city. It's made up of trade guilds. Trade guild is an association of uh, craftsmen who worked in various trades, such as wool workers or linen workers, garment workers, leather workers, tanners, potters, those who made dye for clothing. Lydia, the first of Paul's converts in Philippi, was from Thyatira. We see that in Acts chapter 16. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so she apparently represented one of these trade guilds selling their uh, products in another city when she heard the Apostle Paul and came to faith. In any case, most people involved in the economic activity of Thyatira would have belonged to one or another of these trade guilds, these trade associations, in the same way that many people belong to trade unions today. You can turn off the map now, thanks. Once again, this letter begins with an identification of Jesus Christ drawn from the vision of chapter 1. The majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ prepares the way for his stern words in verses uh, 22 and 23. The chief god of Thyatira was Apollo. <coughs> Apollo was the son of Zeus, and he was often called the son of the Most High God. Perhaps that explains why here Jesus is called the Son of God. Unlike that mythical Son of that mythical God, this is the true Son of the living God. And it's significant, this is the only place in the whole book of Revelation where Jesus is spoken of as the Son of God. Almost every other image we get is related to him being king. But here, because that would be most appropriate for this city that worshipped a false god who said he was the son of God, Jesus presents himself, no, I'm the real son of God. And we see that here. So how is Christ revealed as the son of God to this church? It says, the words of the son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. We get that phrase, burnished bronze. Again, it's only used in Revelation. It's not used anywhere else in the scriptures. Uh, it's translated, there's other words that are translated burnished bronze, but this has a very unique word here. So it's, it's almost as if they took sort of the regular burnished bronze and shined it up even more. So it, it's really bright and, and glowing. And the description comes from chapter 1, the long description we get of Jesus, but it seems it's based on Daniel's vision of a heavenly being in Daniel chapter 10. And you can see those verses there. It says, His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And though bronze working was not uh, unique to Thyatira, 
It did have a bronze workers' guild in the city. Bronze was a very important uh, metal made for military use. And so those who are familiar with metalworking could probably envision the appearance of Jesus' feet, which according to Revelation uh, 1, were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And those who have gazed into a bronze smelter and saw the molten metal inside may understand a great deal about the glory of the risen Christ. If you've ever seen molten metal and how bright and, and how hot that is. So we're given this picture of Jesus right off the top. A picture of Jesus that seems to be adapted particularly for this place. And immediately after that, he presents this church with a commendation. In verse 19. Now we know in God's providence, Lydia became important in planning of the church in Philippi. Had she returned to Thyatira and become instrumental in establishing the church uh, there as well? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But by the time Revelation is written, this church seems to be flourishing. And Jesus says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your, patient, uh, your service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. There's four essential qualities singled out here. Love, faith, service, <coughs> and patient endurance. Some versions have uh, hope and perseverance in there. If you think about it, there could hardly be a better commendation of any church than to note these characteristics. You know, these uh, faith and love and, and hope, depending on your translation, they're highlighted by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 as making up the very essence of spiritual maturity. And not only that, he says they're increasing in virtue. Jesus says, your latter works exceed the first. Now they're doing even more in the areas of love, faith, service, and patient endurance than they did at first. If you remember the church in Ephesus, they were doctrinally correct, but had no love. This church has lots of love, but it doesn't have the doctrine. It's the opposite of Ephesus. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus commended them for persevering in sound doctrine, but he rebuked them for losing their first love, their love for him, their love for each other, their love for the lost. This church has the opposite problem. In fact, Jesus commends this church because of their love, so much so uh, that their love for him, their love for each other, their love for their lost has actually increased over time. This congregation in Thyatira, this is a congregation that has a good reputation as a church. It's one that we think highly of today. They're loving, they have a strong faith, they serve each other, they patiently endure. Extremely commendable as a congregation. But Jesus also rebukes this church for tolerating false teaching within their midst. And the Christians of Thyatira are loving, but they're not discerning. What they really need is to take some of the Ephesians and move them to Thyatira, and take some of the Thyatirans and move them to Ephesus. 
but they're not discerning. And so Jesus brings them a very strong word of rebuke. A word of rebuke, verses 20 to 23. These are some hard words. He says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Remember I said, do not name your daughters Jezebel. Don't. It's bad. Don't do that. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now the trade guilds worked hand in hand with the local religious observances, and to not participate in their observance posed a major problem for uh, the economic well-being of the Christian community. They needed to feed their family. And in order to make a living, it's essential to belong to one of these trade guilds. To belong to that guild meant you would participate in what everyone else did. And to be honest, it wouldn't be that hard to justify this, to rationalize this. After all, I have to feed my family. And if the Christians involved in business didn't participate in the guilds, they would lose not only social acceptance, but any economic ability, any economic gain that they had. These trade guilds would have uh, big feasts, big common meals together. And those meals would be dedicated to some pagan god. Each guild had their own god. And then uh, perhaps in uh, order to be licensed to do business in the community, you had to be a member of the trade guild. And the problem is that each trade guild is tied to the worship of a particular god. (coughs) Excuse me. must have talked too much during Sunday school. And at the end of their meeting, they'd have this big meal and be held in celebration of their God. And, you know, you can imagine the drinks would get flowing and it would often lead to immorality. And this caused the Christians to compromise in Thyatira. And apparently there was a prophetess referred to here as Jezebel in that church And she was teaching that you could be part of these trade guilds and the Christians wouldn't suffer by participating in these idolatrous and immoral activities. You know, there's a woman inside the church who claims to have the gift of prophecy and she's powerful and influential and no one dared to confront her. Apparently this influential lady, you know, you can imagine she's quite attractive, she's quite influential, and she's quite deceptive in her charm. She may have been a successful businesswoman herself. And so she's convincing the people there that it's not spiritual. It's just business. It's just business. Now, the woman here is not literally Jezebel, but she's called Jezebel as a biblical symbol of a woman who's leading God's people 
into idolatry and immorality. I said in Sunday school, Satan is an equal opportunity uh, employer. He'll use women just as much as men to wreck a church. He really doesn't care whichever works. If you remember the story of Jezebel from 1 Kings, Jezebel caused the, the Israelites, she caused the Israelites to be led into the worship of the pagan god Baal, B-A-A-L. And Jezebel led Israel into Baal worship, which is marked by idolatry and immorality. Constant problem in the Old Testament during the time of the kings all the way up until the exile. Now, the Old Testament Jezebel is a daughter of the king of Sidon. She became the wife of King Ahab of Israel, the northern kingdom, and she's remembered for having made the worship of this pagan god Baal popular in Israel. Baal's a fertility god, and his worship involved the practice of sexual immorality. And in the temples of Baal, there were temple prostitutes, both male and female, and associated with the worship of Baal. And the Israelites sort of flocked to this worship because, you know, it was immorality and it didn't really count against you. You know, you could walk out and say, well, it wasn't really sin. It was part of the temple, you know, worship thing. Yeah, you had to do it. Um, and so Jezebel led these people, led the nation of Israel into what we would call syncretism, the fusing together of two different religions. And uh, she spread this idolatry until it became one of the most popular religions of the day. And she herself supported over 800 false prophets of Baal who ate at her table. Now, if you read the whole Old Testament, you know, the, the real prophets of God said things you didn't want to hear. You need to repent. You need to stop sinning. Stop with the idolatry and immorality. And they got killed. The false prophets, they would come and say, what, what would God, what do you think God would want, you know, what do you want God to say? And they would say, well, I think, you know, it'd be okay, all this immorality stuff. And so, well, that's exactly what God says. And they said, wow, you're brilliant. You're really smart. You get a raise. You get a dental plan. And so they get to move to uh, the king's palace and eat at the king's table, and everybody loved them because they just told them whatever it is they wanted to hear. Of course, there was Elijah. He was a problem because he showed up. You remember there was a uh, big conflict, and uh, he had a famous encounter with the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice and consumed the false prophets. And with great courage, this mighty man of God, Elijah, he faced 480 false prophets. But when Jezebel got after him, he ran for his life. He ran from Israel to Egypt, and he asked God to take his life because that would be better than having getting caught by Jezebel. In fact, he asked God to do that twice. So you have an idea of the power and influence and the fear that this woman had over the people. And she's also the one who murdered her neighbor because her husband wanted his vineyard. She is a ruthless, immoral, godless seducer of the people. And that's why Jesus selects her name for this immoral, godless uh, seducer of the people in Thyatira. 
And God dealt with Jezebel according to the fulfillment of a prophecy about her given by the prophet Elijah. And she died when she was thrown from her palace window into the courtyard below where she was trampled by horses and dogs came and ate her body and licked up her blood. And 2 Kings 9 says, when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told them, the king Jehu of Israel, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall, feed, shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say this is Jezebel. There was so little left of her, there was nothing left to bury. And the idea was they wouldn't be able to create a grave or a tomb where people can say, here lies Jezebel. Here's where she is. There was so little left. There was no place for her. There was nothing left to bury. That was her punishment from God. Jezebel ranks as possibly the most evil woman in the Bible. And God has some very harsh things to say to her, both Old Testament and now in Revelation. And God will deal with the Jezebels of this world. And that's what we see here in Revelation 2, look verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. It's speaking here uh, partially to the issue of church discipline. We don't discipline people for immorality. We discipline them for the failure to repent, for the refusal to repent. It doesn't matter what the sin is. I mean, some sins obviously are more serious than others and have bigger consequences. All sins can separate us from God. But the discipline is for a refusal to repent of that sin. And right here he says, she refuses to repent. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. That bed of pleasure becomes a bed of, of sickness. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of, their, of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Christ promised sudden and immediate judgment. He called her sin adultery and promised that all who follow her will suffer intensely. And he promised to strike her children dead. Meaning that suffering would extend to her followers. It's a promise of severe discipline. John Stott reminds us of that description of Jesus which started this letter. He said, he whose eyes are like blazing fire also has feet like burnished bronze. And the eyes that see into the hidden depths of our hearts can blaze with righteous anger. And his feet of burnished bronze can trample us to powder. And the response of Christ's holiness to this unrepentant sin is certain judgment, either immediate or on the day of judgment. And any thought of harshness in this punishment is removed. The judgment of God is according to his justice. It's just the realization of what sin deserves, no more, no less. And the justice of God is paramount. And beds of sin become beds of sickness. And the pleasures of sin yield great tribulation. And even more startling are these words, I will strike her children dead. It is those 
words, it is those kind of words that bring home the utter seriousness of God's judgment and the folly of trifling with sin. God takes her sin far more seriously than she does. And I think God takes our sin far more seriously than we do. It should bring a spirit of seriousness into the church and seriousness to the oversight of the church by the elders. Remember, the Corinthian church experienced the reality of these verses. 1 Corinthians 11, we read this every Sunday. We'll read it again next Sunday. We have the Lord's Supper. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And when it came to the uh, issue of Jezebel, this church compromised. They tolerated her and her teachings and her actions, but Jesus does not. Because he knows to compromise means to commit spiritual adultery. And spiritual adultery leads to spiritual sickness, which leads to spiritual death. And we need to understand that Jesus holds the church responsible. He says, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. God's not talking about it going on out in the culture, or out in the community, but that it's being allowed by Christians in the church. And the individual members of the church here in Thyatira are failing to speak the truth in love to one another. And Jesus rebukes the church here for tolerating individuals who are living in unrepentant, persistent, compromising lifestyles of sin. And we hear the voice of Jezebel all the time. Look, you know, I'm all for loyalty to Jesus, but things just don't work that way in the real world. It's not spiritual. It's business. As though the real world doesn't include the real presence of Jesus Christ. And now the most direct application for us here, I think, is to realize that wherever it is that you work, that is the greatest place of temptation. Work is often where Christianity meets the road of real difficulty and the challenges of real ethical compromise. Temptations to cook the books a little to make our company look better to investors. To withhold information from a client if it's perceived as a liability. To say something about a competitor's product that's not true. To make promises as a businessman that you know your customer service people can't deliver on. To purposely uh, overlook something you shouldn't when doing an audit. To copy someone else's product even though they have a patent. To call in sick when you're not. To fake an injury on the job to lock hours uh, that you never worked. To bill a customer for a service you didn't provide. To fudge your taxes to avoid giving the government its due. To cover for your boss when he asks you to lie or engage in business practices that are unethical. Or simply to overcharge your customers. Dr. Earl Palmer wrote, The most subtle challenge to faith doesn't usually originate in public amphitheaters, but in the daily places where we earn the money we need to live. Isn't that the truth? I mean, it might mean going to a city with certain co-workers, and they want to take you out on the town to places where immoral activities are taking place. And Christians need to stand for the truth and to seek accountability and ask for prayer as they're on business travel. A lot, of, a lot of folks here travel, men and women, for business. Nobody in this church should travel for business that they're not getting prayed for, 
because that's where the real temptation hits. The question before Christians in every culture is, how can I do my job in a way that's pleasing to God? Am I compromising? Am I trusting God to provide, or am I trusting in my own business? Am I trusting in my own efforts? Am I getting greedy with my uh, uh, profits, or am I gouging employees or gouging customers? I think those are hard questions for each and every one of us to face. But it seems here that not everyone in Thyatira is caving in to that pressure to compromise. And to those faithful people, Jesus makes an urgent appeal, verse 24. An urgent appeal, he says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I said, do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And very interesting, interestingly, it's a hard word, Jesus picks up an often used expression of the Jezebel cult at the end of this letter. He's referring how they love to speak of deep things. It's an elitist claim to special knowledge and revelation known only to the select few. Remember when we went through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it was a major theme of those letters, of John combating those that said, you know, there's you regular Christians, but then there's the super Christians, you know, because we know the extra stuff. We know the deep things. It's been a feature of many religions, including many Christian cults, and to some extent, the epistle to uh, the Colossian church deals with that issue as well. Those who claim special experiences or special knowledge gives them insight to hidden secrets of God. And those who claim such experience are often bound together in some sort of uh, fraternity and sworn to secrecy. The best-known example in the early church, which has reemerged today, is Gnosticism. But whatever claims they're making to knowing the deep things, Jesus is pretty direct here. He says they are the deep things of Satan. They're not the deep things of God. They're the deep things of Satan. And within this church, this church that demonstrated such love and such faith and such service and such patient endurance, he said, Satan is at work even in this church. And like, like the uh, Nicolaitans and Ephesus and Pergamum, this Jezebel has the potential of completely undoing the church in Thyatira. And to those in the church who maintained a good testimony, uh, despite the presence of Jezebel, Jesus urges perseverance for them. He says, hold fast. He adds, I do not lay on you any other burden. That phrase seems to mirror the same thought in the letter that was sent to all the churches after the Jerusalem council in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, when all the apostles and disciples got together. And what they said there was, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed from idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, dealing with idolatry, and from sexual immorality, the same two issues. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. And Christ didn't place any new regulations or legalism uh, on them. They're to use their heads when it comes to their life and doctrine. You know, and I'm sure that they would have thought that some people would have retreated uh, into legalism. You know, the church in Ephesus was looking pretty good 
to these folks in Thyatira. And uh, not wishing to be tolerant of Jezebel's uh, licentiousness. The temptation to ensure godliness by imposing a system of rules over and above what the Bible has given us is very tempting. But no such burden is to be imposed. They're to live by the standards of the revealed word of God. As John said in 1 John 5, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And so for those faithful members of the church, Jesus not only makes an urgent appeal, but he also gives them an amazing promise. He gives them an amazing promise, verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those verses are quoting from Psalm 2, a messianic psalm, which was our responsive reading this morning. You know, sometimes people wonder we get the responsive reading, and they're like, that's a little different. Not always, but almost always it has something to do with the sermon later. And today's does. Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, which you read earlier, which is printed in your uh, bulletin, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's a direct reference back to this messianic psalm. And the Lord is saying that the authority that he's been given over the nations will be shared with his faithful followers. And at the end of Revelation, Jesus goes to this imagery again as he describes himself, Revelation 22. Uh, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He promises them the morning star. To such conquerors, he promises that by rejecting Jezebel will ensure the possession of the morning star, nothing less than himself. Reject Jezebel, you get Jesus. Jesus would be their greatest possession. And all that's good to know. But you might ask, is it really relevant to our day and age? I think it is. And I think we ignore it at great peril. Let me give you an example of a modern-day Jezebel. Now, this is someone who says they're in the church, they're part of the church. Her name is Oprah Winfrey. Some of you may like her. You may watch her show. Lots of people do. She has 22 million weekly viewers. She has 2 million magazine readers and 115 million visitors to her website. But the reason I take her to task is she claims to be a Christian. Here are some things she believes. These are actual quotes found on her website taken primarily from her television show. Oprah says, well, I'm a Christian who believes there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. Last I checked, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Those don't match. Oprah says, one of the mistakes that humans make is to believe there is only one way. There are many paths to what you call God. 
I am the way, Jesus says. Oprah says, God, in the essence of all consciousness, isn't something to believe. God is. God is, and God is a feeling experience, not a believing experience. And in fact, if your religion is a believing experience, if God for you is about belief, then it's not truly God. Last I read, Romans said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is about believing. Oprah says, it isn't until you come to a spiritual understanding of who you are, not necessarily a religious feeling, but deep down the spirit within that you can begin to take control. On January 1st, 2008, Oprah and friends began to offer a year-long course on miracles. There are 365 lessons in this miracles workbook. You can look at it online. Here's a few things that this Oprah workbook on miracles teaches. Quote, my salvation comes from me. There is no sin. A slain Christ has no meaning. The journey to the cross should be the last useless journey. God is in everything I see. The recognition of God is the recognition of yourself. The atonement is the final lesson he need learn, for it teaches him that never having sin, he has no need of salvation. I can't tell you how many verses and doctrines that goes against in Christianity, but that strikes at the heart of Christianity. These are not Christian quotes. None of them. They're all false. And she is a false prophetess, although she may not use that term for herself. I'm using it. Every one of her quotes here is explicitly contradicted in the scriptures. So contrary to what Oprah teaches, what does this passage reveal to us about who Jesus really is? Every verse of this passage implicitly assumes that Jesus is God and we're not. That he's the sovereign judge to whom we must give an account. That he's the one bringing afflictions and judgment. That he's the one whose eyes are like flames of fire. That he's the one who searches mind and heart. That he's the one making promises of eternal life. All of these verses naturally assume that Jesus was being absolutely trustworthy when he said, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In our passage this morning, in the last uh, sentence of uh, verse 23, it says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That's the middle sentence in the middle letter of the seven letters, and other than the standard admonition to, liver, to listen to comes at the end of all of them, this is the only sentence in all seven letters that refers to all the churches at the same time. It's surely no accident. He says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And this morning, you got to decide who's Jesus and who's Jezebel. Who's telling the truth and who's telling a lie? You're not going to give an account to Oprah or anyone else on this earth because Oprah's not God and neither is anyone else, even if they claim to be. And they don't really care about you. Jesus does. He loves his bride. 
And he's a husband who's not going to let his bride, the church, persist in spiritual adultery. He's making a beautiful bride, he says in Ephesians 5, without wrinkle or blemish, but a pure and holy bride. And he will present it, the church, his bride, to himself in splendor. This isn't merely a way to get by in life. This is a promise to those who overcome that we will share in the victory of Jesus and he will win. After all, it says in Revelation 19, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress to the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And he doesn't like Jezebel and he doesn't like compromise and he is the king and he is coming back. Think about that. You need to pray. Pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this revelation. Thank you that once again it shows us our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that would you help us to be people who are known for our love and our faith and our servants and our patient endurance. Enable us to hunger and thirst for truth and to be discerning when pressured to compromise. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit give us the strength to resist idolatry and immorality. And we ask that you would do this in each one of us this morning, for each one of us this morning, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.